and welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is, I feel the need to announce, the penultimate episode of Season 7 of National Treasure Hunt. Congratulations, Emily. We've almost completed seven whole seasons. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that you wrote me into this seven seasons ago. <laughs> Something I take great pride in. And guess what? Um, a little insider baseball here. Literally this past weekend, I went ahead and plotted out season eight. I figured you you would have, yes. Mm-hmm. And I confirmed that we have fodder for many seasons to come. So Aubrey, we knew this. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just reassuring our adoring fans, Emily. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, guys. You'll get to hear us bigger. <laughs> for a long time coming. But today, I don't think we're going to be bickering too much because we have a really fun episode at the intersection of history and legend today. Yes, we do. And I think that we had a theme this season, Emily, where we had a lot of episodes where we, we had this grand idea of what the episode would become, but we just didn't know how it would piece together until we were recording Every time, like, I feel like we had some of our best episodes this season because we got to some really fun revelations in the moment. I kind of feel like today is going to be one of those as we start to dive into what are some legendary treasures in history? What are what are some treasures that have gone missing under mysterious circumstances from different parts of the world? And we're not just talking about this because we like history, which we do. But we, of course, have to ask the question, are these treasures candidates for National Treasure 3? Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing we care about, really. Yeah. Now, I will be candid and say um, that this episode has been on my mind for over a year now. I was one of the people in 2022 that really, really enjoyed the show Pirate Gold of Adak Island on Netflix, which I think I mentioned as a scream at one point probably a season or two ago. Um, but this was a show, like a documentary about a group of treasure hunters that used history and science to try to locate pirate gold um, on Adak Island. And it just, the history and science combined just really gave national treasure hunt vibes to me. And now I'm really excited that we were able to put this episode together. But before we dive in to the meat of this episode, Emily, you know what we got to do. We must admit just how far we have fallen into the National Treasure Pit with our screams from Parkington Lane. Okay, Aubrey, I have a good one for you this I week. I literally cannot wait. Um, as you know, and as my screams have indicated lately, I've been rewatching The Office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in case anybody wants to check out the scene... Uh, there is a scene in season five, episode 16, where the main character, Michael Scott, is going through a system by which he remembers new people's names, and he picks, like, a character trait about them, and then, it's usually offensive, and then traces it back until he gets to their name. But, like, his leaps 
seem a little illogical, but he also goes through it very quickly. And literally as he was doing this for a couple of the characters, I turned to Josh and I was like, he sounds like Ben Gates when he's solving the clue in the beginning of Ah! Treasure. (laughs) And he completely agreed. So if you want to check that out, that is The Office episode 16 of season five um, for a little Ben Gates, Michael Scott comparison. Crossover event. (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Aubrey? All right, so you've been complaining at me, Emily, that I talk all the time about how I have national treasure dreams, and then I don't want to share them as my scream every week because it would be kind of weird. So I'm going to share one of my national treasure dreams today. Are you ready? Born ready. Okay, so this is actually a very recent one, um, and what I'm about to share is kind of going to timestamp when we're recording this episode. Um, So... I don't know if folks have seen the like TikTok Instagram trend of how often do you think about the Roman Empire, which I'm obsessed with, just as an aside. Um, <laughs> but Can I say that I asked Josh this? Uh-huh. And he said probably once or twice a month. Yes, I, I asked like five guys in my life and I got every, the, the least frequent answer I got was like quarterly, so four times a year which is way more still than me. And the most frequent I got was like every other week. Mm. So yes, this is very much a thing. But as an aside, the night that I like fell into this Roman Empire rabbit hole was the night I had this dream. The dream was that you and I, Emily, were at a special screening of National Treasure 3. And the whole first hour of the movie was like our normal characters looking for what the Charlotte clue meant, like the original Charlotte clue. So it's kind of like we went backwards in time. And at some point they were in Rome, hence the Roman empire thing. Uh, Long story short, we did not like it. We did (gasps) not, we did not like the movie. We did not like the direction, um, which is surprising because we're all about the Charlotte clue here. But, um, yeah, that's my scream. That's literally it. It's a downer, but cool. (laughs) It is a downer indeed. Um, But, yes, I have, like, spoiler alert for future episodes, the other dreams that I have in my backlog of screams, they're also about National Treasure 3, so I kind of have a problem. We all knew it. I'm glad you finally admitted it. Okay, well, you know who else has a problem, Emily? One of our super fans and one of our Patreon subscribers who everyone met, you know, earlier this season on our recent super fans episode, her name is Lisa. Uh, shout out to Lisa. She shared a new screen with us this week that I wanted to read aloud. Are you prepared to react, Emily? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Lisa prefaced this by saying, I just had the most ridiculous scream from Parkington Lane. She goes on to explain how she kind of had a bad day that accumulated in her dropping her headphones and her headphones exploding into, as she said, 20 scattered pieces. But, and I quote, 
It started with my shoelace snapping as I tied it this morning. So when I was talking to my partner, I said, well, I broke a shoelace this morning and suddenly thought that that was an indicator of bad luck. And it took a second before I realized that where I had heard that before is from Riley at the beginning of National Treasure when he tells them that they might not be able to trust his tracking in the Arctic because he broke a shoelace that morning. Lisa goes on to say that she did immediately double check and that is the exact scene um, that, that came to mind for her. Her partner was totally bewildered, not only what she was doing, like looking up this uh, the movie that day, kind of at a very random point, um, but the fact that she remembered this very niche quote. And Lisa, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, I mean, as a quote person, bravo. Truly. Bravo, indeed. So thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing that scream. And if you want to hear your screams on National Treasure Hunt, you have to join our Patreon. You do. But first, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. You can find out everything else about us aside from our bathroom schedules uh, at our website, nthuntpodcast.com. Uh, please, if you haven't yet, go order our book, National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy, at TuckerDSPress.com. And as Aubrey mentioned, you can support this podcast by becoming a member of our Patreon at Patreon.com slash NTHuntPodcast, where you get access to a ton of extra bonus content and things like getting your screen shared. Um, and then lastly... Um, as you know, we've been talking about this season. We've done a collaboration with Cleo to make a candle that is inspired by the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So if you would like to go ahead and purchase that candle, you can go for it by going to exploreclio.com. That's exploreklio.com. All right. I think it is time for us to tell you what this episode is going to look like. We are very excited, as we said, to dive into some legendary treasures of history today. Uh, we picked six treasures to discuss in detail. Um, it turns out that was quite an effort because there are a lot of things that people consider lost treasures in history. We really had to make some decisions. Just for context, how we chose the treasures that we ended up choosing. Um, for starters, the ones that kept coming up over and over again when we searched various history sites for legendary treasures. Those uh, were some of our selections. We also wanted some geographical diversity, some historical time period diversity, and some treasures that even before we researched them, we knew would give us some entertaining national treasure conversations, okay? Um, so what we're going to do, we'll introduce a treasure. We'll talk about its history. Uh, we will do the where are they now of the treasure world. In other words, has it been found and where can you find it if it has? Then we'll talk about any surprise national treasure connections. We're kind of an expert at finding like accidental national treasure connections here on the pod. Um, and then finally, the most important and perhaps fun part of each conversation will be, is this treasure 
a candidate for National Treasure 3, and why, based on our profound expertise and very strong opinions. Emily, does that sound about right to you? It does. And Aubrey, I want to get us started with your first treasure, because I have never heard of this. Uh, Me either. And this is definitely one of the ones that just kept popping up when we searched for legendary treasures in history. This treasure is called the Amber Room. Okay. Fascinating, because it seems very popular in the online treasure verse and yet i had never heard of it either what is the amber room well as its name suggests this is a room made of amber panels gold mosaics mirrors and carvings amber um for anyone who's unfamiliar is a stone right it's it's made from like i'm gonna totally butcher this from a scientific perspective as i am not a geologist but like fossilized tree sap basically awesome the thing from jurassic park that the mosquito was in Yes, (laughs) that's actually a great comparison because people will probably know what you're talking about. But unlike you, what you might expect from Jurassic Park, amber is actually real Um, and it is quite valuable. So the room's construction started in 1701 at the Charlottenburg Palace. Um, At the time, this was the palace of Friedrich I. This was the first king of Prussia. Um, depending on how you know him in history, Friedrich I is the same person as Frederick William I or Friedrich Wilhelm I, all the same person. I know that's confusing. Just go with me here. So Frederick William I gifted the Amber Room to Russia's Peter the Great 15 years after its construction in 1716. Now, according to what I read in Smithsonian Magazine, this, quote, cemented a Prussian-Russian alliance against Sweden. I, as you know, I'm not really great with history. That is not U.S. Revolutionary War or Civil War history. So don't ask me why they needed a Prussian-Russian alliance against Sweden, of all countries. Um, long story short... After this gifting, the Amber Room was like reconstructed in Russia. We're going to find it's it's very important to know that the room can kind of be disassembled and reassembled, I guess, because it's like made of these panels and these discrete parts. In Russia, it had multiple locations, but it was moved to the Catherine Palace in 1755, where it was expanded to its like grandest form. Like they made it even bigger uh, with more valuables and beauty. Um Ultimately, the room spanned 180 square feet and contained about, get this, M, six tons of amber and other stones. Can you imagine how many, like, ancient U-Hauls they would have needed to, like, move that from one place to another? I guess ships, probably. <laughs> but the ships would have, so, like, would have been a lot of ships. I mean, it's it's definitely not sparse. Uh, the room was was known to be really, really beautiful and peaceful and and everything for good reason, I suppose. And historians estimate that the room's contents would have been worth today one hundred and forty two million dollars. Okay, so I I know you're getting here, Aubrey. Are you gonna tell me that? panels 
got stolen or disappeared? Uh, uh, like, how does a room <laughs> just disappear? Emily, I'm so glad you asked. Um, we need to jump forward now to World War II. Okay, so during World War II, Hitler invades the Soviet Union and he loots tons of art and artifacts. Now, as Hitler's forces got closer, Catherine Palace's curators tried disassembling and hiding the room, its pieces, basically, but the amber was too fragile. So they tried, like, covering it in wallpaper so, like, Hitler's people wouldn't be able to tell what it was. How would that um, not ruin the amber? I, I mean, they were just covering it. They weren't trying to, like, take it apart. Yeah, but you got to cover it with, like, paint, like, a uh, glue. Okay, you know, don't, it doesn't matter because it didn't work, all right? Okay. <laughs> the German soldiers ultimately packed the room into 24 crates and shipped it to Konigsberg. Um, Konigsberg is now, I'm going to butcher this and I apologize if I do, Kaliningrad, Germany. Um, and at this point, once it gets to Konigsberg, it's reassembled again in the Konigsberg Castle Museum. But when World War II draws to a close, the museum disassembles the room once again and crates it up because, you know, probably they feared it would be taken back um, or at least, you know, they were at least preparing for some sort of conflict or violence that could ultimately damage the room. Turns out they were right. Because in August of 1944, Allied forces bombed the city and the museum was left in ruins. Okay, so the amber is presumably now smashed to pieces? Well, this gets to our where are they now segment, right? The short answer is no one knows for sure. Um, there are many theories as to what happened to the components of the room. The most common is exactly that, um, that the room's parts were destroyed by the bombings in 1944. Other iterations of theories, I would say from most plausible to least plausible, <laughs> include number one, uh, that the amber is still somewhere in, I guess, Konigsberg or present day Kaliningrad somewhere that we don't know where it is. Maybe they hid it somewhere before the bombings and it just hasn't turned back up. Another theory is that the Germans tried moving the crated panels and, and components by ship. The ship sank and it's now somewhere at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Um, my personal favorite because this seems totally wild, like it's super conspiracy theory-esque and like maybe gives national treasure, is that maybe when the Germans stole the Amber Room from Russia, they didn't actually steal the real Amber Room. They stole a fake and the real one is still in Russia. Okay. So when the wallpaper idea didn't work, they were just like, let's get us some brownish clear glass and I just will make it look good think of how brilliant this could have been like maybe they tried the wallpapering to draw attention to this fake room and then it prompted the germans to steal the room not thinking yeah. twice yeah because they walked in and the wallpaper's like peeling down yeah. off and corn mm -hmm. mm. i like it okay okay 
Okay. Um, before we get to the national treasure of it all, I did want to note that um, there is apparently an Amber Room curse, as there are curses with so many legends in history. Basically, a lot of people who have been involved with the room or they've investigated the room or they've talked about it in some official capacity, like, met untimely ends. Aubrey. We just talked about it. We're not, like, government officials, like, from Russia or Germany or whatever, talking about it in an official capacity. Aubrey, do you understand how anxious this is going to make me? Oh, my God. Just forgot I said anything. Um, if you would like to go visit the Amber Room, Emily, you can visit a reconstruction, like, replica thing that was created in Russia in the late 1900s. And it is on display to the public. I'm going to pass. Okay. <laughs> Okay, breathe. Literally. Dude, I'm so concerned that, like, I'm gonna fall dead, or Josh is gonna fall dead before this wedding. And now I'm like, are we gonna meet our untimely ends before the wedding? Before I get to marry him. I just want to marry him. Okay. Um, You're gonna be just fine. If anyone will meet an untimely end, I was the one who was researching it. You're just listening. I want you to be there! Okay, well, that's very kind of you. I appreciate it. Um, let's get to the end of this, shall we? National treasure connections. Are there any like weird little national treasure connections to this case? No, there are none whatsoever. <laughs> and I'm usually really good at finding niche national treasure connections. Um, I guess unless you like the idea of the national treasure franchise expanding its like repertoire of of old like older valuable stones post edge of history you know we had like our our jade and our obsidian and and whatever um we could add amber to the mix if we went the amber room route um so the question on everyone's mind could the amber room be a candidate for national treasure three emily i'm gonna do my best i think when we get to the stage for each of the treasures we can kind of play pitch like pitch yes or pitch no. Um, I would say that the most obvious answer is no. The Amber Room doesn't really play a good can candidate role here because it disappeared in the like mid 1900s. And as we know, we don't really like the idea of a 20th century story for national treasure, but here's how it could work. Get this, picture this really. Because the room was gifted between two kings, if you will, maybe an important message was incorporated into the room only to be shared between the two kings in the early 1700s. Now think about that. That could be feasible and interesting because these are two large powers and the exchange of the room was part of an alliance, remember? the alliance against Sweden. So what if there was a message hidden there? And then could the Germans have known about the message during World War II, which is one of the reasons they took the room? Now, if we were to go this route, I will finish, Emily. If we were to go this route, the early 1700s timing of the room's construction and chain, like exchange of hands could really be excellent. And the film... Because, you know, the writing team is brilliant on National Treasure. They might even find a clever way to tie the Freemasons or Charlotte or the Founding Fathers into this because we're talking early 1700s. I was not at all expecting that. 
Wow. That's really good. Um should we should we get John Turtletop on the line? Okay, calm down. <laughs> no, I have I have a better one coming up, I think, but that is very like that's not where I was expecting it to go. I don't know where I was expecting it to go, but the secret message component, at first I was like, this is nonsense. And then the more you explained it, I was like, oh, no, I can see it. So that's the thing. This exercise immediately made me realize that we need, we can't be too hasty to judge a potential treasure topic based on like the year it disappeared, right? Because many treasures have elements throughout history and could give us dates at different points in history that could actually be uh, really synergistic even if they disappeared later in time. So that's treasure number one. Um, as you're going to see today, we're not going to go in chronological order for the treasures because that would get really boring, I think. So we're going to jump back in time here to Emily, your first treasure, which is the lost library of the Moscow czars. Yes. So... You know me, love me a library. So what is this library? Basically, it was thought to be a collection of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew works or like texts. Basically, like old books. Um, and but like things that would complete, I guess, like some of the stuff that you know, classical scholars have today. Um, so the Aubrey, okay. So you, you gave me some interesting ones here. Um, <laughs> this one, I mean, like, we're not even sure if it existed. Um, oh, like the lost library at Alexandria. That one uh, people knew existed. Okay, it's giving Alexandria Library. That's why it I picked this Aubrey, one. Sh don't get there. Don't get there. Okay. Um. So basically, I'm gonna take you through the timeline of like when the library or supposed library started being mentioned. So the first mention is was in 1518. Okay, we're gonna throw out some fun names here. The Moscow Grand Prince. Vasily III had a meeting with a man whose name was Mikhail Tripolis. Basically, he went by Maximus the Greek, because why not? Um, and the Grand Prince showed Maximus the Greek a ton of old Greek books to impress him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this I was would, like, I would be impressed by that. Yeah. This was written down. It was on the record somewhere. So like, cool. Next mention of the library was like 50 some years later, 1565, a man by the name of Johannes Wetterman, who was a German Protestant minister who had established like a Protestant church in Russia, met with Ivan the Fourth, also known as Ivan the Terrible, right? Can I just say it would be really helpful if, like, these rulers of ancient times—not even ancient, but these past rulers—could just pick a name and stick with it. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so uh, Wetterman here met with the Terrible to look at old books, 
that had been locked in a storeroom in the Kremlin for, like, over 100 years. Okay. Wetterman was apparently asked to translate, like, one of the manuscripts, um, but declined to do so because he did not want to get, like, pulled into having to do this again and again and never being able to, like, leave Russia. Um and it doesn't seem like any of the books that he was shown on his visit have been seen since this occurred. Huh. Okay. Um, now, I will say that there are some people who are like, no, that's made up. Like, Wetterman, like, no. But, you know, other places reported as being a real thing. So we'll, we'll put it there. Um now, in 1682, so jumping jumping ahead again. So this official in Moscow by the last name of Makarov, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, came upon, supposedly, two storerooms in an underground passageway under the Kremlin. Oh, remember the Kremlin from before. Mm-hmm. Um, he claimed that one contained trunks and he told the princess at the time uh princess sophia alexievna i think um and upon hearing this she refused to let anyone else enter those rooms so like that seems suspicious sophia but like obviously we have to look for it right otherwise it's not really a treasure so there were some <laughs> There were some excavations that, like, people ended up being able to get, pat like, approved. Um, they were attempted in the 1890s and then again in the 1930s. And basically, like, they did not yield much. It either yielded, like, just trash or, like, the excavation sites themselves, like, were flooded. Yes. So does that not scream, like, that... The Princess Sophia or others since had, like, basically emptied them of anything important, like the trunks? It's it's possible. Okay. So, where are they now? Where is this library that may or may not exist now, Emily? Yeah. Great question, Aubrey. So, either it never existed, so it's nowhere. Um. Another idea is that it has been spread among other people over the years. So, like, the, you know, the people in power in Russia, like, over time kind of just, like, gave out these things as this kind of knowledge became, like, less important. There was a time in Russia where, like, they really wanted to prove that they had a lot of kind of this like classical historical knowledge and stuff so having all these things was really good for that hmm. so there's some ideas that like you know maybe the books and such have dispersed or there is a theory that it could still be under the kremlin hmm. i kind of like that one nobody ever found it like where they dug wasn't the right place or you know that it was moved under the kremlin so you don't know um, existing National Treasure connections, you may be asking. I mean, eh. we found stuff from the Library of Alexandria. Thank you for spoiling that, Aubrey, before. So why not this library? 
I mean, you know? it would have been fun for Abigail in the first movie to be like, scrolls from the Library of Alexandria and books from the lost Moscow Library. Could this be possible? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, candidacy for National Treasure 3. I mean, we already did the, like, scrolls from Alexandria thing. And also, when we did that, it was a very brief mention. So mm-hmm. I do not necessarily, I don't know that this would be, like, good fodder, because it seems like if this library did exist, it consisted of, like, old books and manuscripts that basically would help people understand more about, like, that kind of stuff, like, classic literature and classic philosophy and stuff like that, which is cool, but it's nothing in my mind, groundbreaking enough to be, like, national treasure worthy. I have a pitch. Yes. Okay. Hear me out. And no, I did not look at your notes before we started recording, so this is coming to me fresh. We have it from John Turtletub. The idea that what if what was on page 47 wasn't a good thing? The last quote-unquote known owner if you will of this library was ivan the terrible could there be something on page 47 about some really like humanity changing information that would be quite negative that comes from this library it's a huge stretch but it's possible Sure. I mean, I think that would imply that Ivan the Terrible would have had to be the one that wrote it. I don't think it would imply that at all. I would just mean that someone from America had found either maybe like an American diplomat or someone had found had found the library or like talked to someone who had seen the library. And then it gets passed back to the president because that would be like some top secret intel. Okay, let me just stop you right there. I hate to break it to you. They're not going to touch Russia. Oh, you mean Disney doesn't want to touch Russia? No. <laughs> Nobody does right now. So, okay. unfortunately, not going to be a national treasure three. Well, I tried. Aubrey, what is your next treasure? Okay, my next treasure is... I was really excited to do this one. Blackbeard's treasure, y'all. Who doesn't love a pirate story? You know? So... Blackbeard, of Scooby-Doo fame, of course, uh, was actually a British man named Edward Teach, Um, but that name obviously sounded too level-headed and kind and innocuous, so Blackbeard uh, was the new default. He pirated in the Caribbean and around the American East Coast, especially around the Southeast, um, in the late 1600s and the early 1700s, where he primarily targeted ships carrying, as you would expect, gold, silver, and the usual uncreative treasure suspects as they departed from the Americas heading back to Spain. Uh, in a way, he was pirating from pirates because isn't that truly what the European conquerors were doing anyway, being pirates themselves, just not on the water? Mm. I have no idea why this history lesson has made me sassy, but here we are. Um, long story short, 
Blackbeard was worth about $12.5 million by his own account. Um, this is the approximate net worth of Pamela Anderson, according to Life and Style magazine. Uh, but sorry to Pamela Anderson, apparently this value was not very high for like, I guess, a pirate in piratey times. Um, not that high for someone who was as famous or infamous, let's say, as someone like Blackbeard. Cool. But like, what what happened? Yeah, what happened, of course. Well, before he died, Blackbeard said that his real treasure was located somewhere, quote, known only to him and the devil, end quote. And to me, it's very unclear if this was the $12.5 million worth of treasure or if there was actually more. Because again, by all accounts, he's a famous pirate. He should have more. Oh, I was thinking the $12.5 million was like his bounty like how much somebody would pay to like have someone like kill him or find him and arrest him no 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 no. this is like how much he owned his value like his net worth okay okay no um and the reason i'm not sure if the the treasure that he says whose location is known only to him and the devil. The reason I'm not sure if that's referring to the 12.5 million or more is because apparently he was known for only keeping like a small amount of like gold dust on his like ship. So pirate version of Tinkerbell. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So the coolest part of this story, in my opinion, is that his most famous ship called the Queen Anne's Revenge was likely discovered Fairly recently in the grand scheme of things, in 1996. Um, It turns out that the remains of the ship lie, or what people think is the ship, it's hard to confirm. Um, They lie just over a mile off the coast of North Carolina, 25 feet underwater. That feels like a a safety hazard? Are there... Wait, so like off the the coast, are there... Like, like the there are ocean. beaches there. Yeah, but I so, mean, like imagine if you're at the beach, a and mile you, like, off go shore. into the water, a mile offshore, a mile offshore, a mile in like ocean dist. How far do they normally let you go out? Not even close to that if you're just oh, swimming. Okay. Um, but I mean, okay. shipwrecks are common all across the East Coast, and you can like actually pay to go on shipwreck dives and stuff like that if you're a diver, which is something that I would personally really like to get into, but I don't know how to scuba dive. Anyway. There's um, a scuba diving place, actually, uh, uh, that'll teach you right by my apartment. Fun okay. fact. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, the reason I say we think it's a ship, it's really hard to confirm because, well, it's been underwater for hundreds of years. Uh there's nothing on the ship that says like the queen anne's revenge because again he was a pirate he stole it um and there's also like so like the the cannons and stuff well that are on board don't say queen anne revenge they don't say blackbeard all that kind of stuff it's it's a pretty nondescript nondescript ship but the reason we think it is his there are various reasons but one of the most important factors is the location accords with where you might expect it to have sunk based on, you know, what is known in history in terms of what happened to him and his ship and his crew. Um, now, the excavation of the ship, which is, again, really precarious. I mean, 
this has been there for hundreds of years and you take something out of the water that's been corroding in salt water for hundreds of years and if you like actually want to study it and care about it uh not great to bring that up into air so the actual excavation was ongoing even in 2011 um remember this ship was discovered in 1996 however blackbeard you know continues to disappoint in my opinion <laughs> As nearly zero gold was found on board. Nearly? Well, there was, like, a little bit, but, like, literally, like, we're talking handful of coins kind of amount. Um, the rest of his treasure, it remains lost to this day. Okay, so National Treasure Connections? Um, I mean, we love a ship in National Treasure. <laughs> True. So, in a weird way, I would like to... I think it would actually be kind of natural to give a national treasure connection here when it comes to things like the charlotte or the hms resolute or what have you um but the real national treasure connection here is a little bit more i don't know sidelined but i think it's interesting blackbeard and the queen anne's revenge were featured in pirates of the caribbean on stranger tides Okay, so I don't know how familiar M you are with the Pirates franchise, but very high-grossing and very popular franchise. Blackbeard and this specific ship were featured in On Stranger Tides, and that movie came out in 2011, hmm. which sounds very much like the height of the ship's excavation off the coast of North Carolina. And this, to me, feels like a very national treasure move, whether it was intentional or not. Um, we know that Bruckheimer was the executive producer on the Pirates franchise. So it wouldn't surprise me if when, you know, they were creating on Stranger Tides, they were looking for recent discoveries in pirate world, if you will, and actually took inspiration from the Queen Anne's Revenge being recently discovered and excavated. Ooh. Okay, so... I'm gonna say since... It was already used in Pirates of the Caribbean. We're probably a no-go for National Treasure 3. Yeah, given its direct usage in Pirates, I would say that Blackbeard's treasure would not make a good candidate for our third film. We always do say that National Treasure really can't afford to draw any more parallels to something like Pirates than it already does. It just invites unnecessary comparisons. We get a lot of accusations of being uncreative or ripping things off um i would say this is really unfortunate though because the late 1600s again i'm always going to go back to dates the late 1600s early 1700s timeline would have obviously been ideal for looping back to the initial national treasure film and again i mean what better way to bring the third film into the franchise than bringing in a historic ship you know um, that being said, if we were to forget the fact, maybe, I don't know, 2011 on Stranger Tides, that was a while ago, maybe everyone's forgotten. If I were to make the case or make the pitch for Blackbeard and his treasure being part of National Treasure 3, I would actually make it less about the treasure and more about the ship. Edward what a shock. No, 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 Not just because I like ships and national treasure. Hear me out. Edward Teach, Blackbeard, stole the ship from the French in 1717. So what message or artifact could the French have had on board? Or 
what could Blackbeard have been after on that particular ship? Why did he pick that one? Or what did he, like, he stole the ship. What did he just coincidentally find on board that he should not have seen? Mm. Okay, you got me again. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I all I'm getting from this exercise is I want to be in the writers' room for National Treasure Three. That's not going to happen, but Rude. you can have goals. Aubrey. <laughs> okay, I just I don't appreciate your lack of faith in me. It's not a lack of faith in you. It's it's more like the system. Can't trust the system. We throw it on the ground. Okay. Um. All right, Happy Emily. Birthday to the ground. <laughs> Call back to college. Okay, so let's move on to your second treasure. This is a little bit more modern. We're talking about something else I had never heard of before. The crown jewels of Ireland? Yeah, so I have a suspicion you gave me this one because Ireland is not Scotland, and we know how much I like Scotland. Um, so it hurt my heart a little bit, but don't worry, I'll mention Scotland briefly. Well, I'm sorry, there was no treasure called the Crown Jewels of Scotland. Uh, but there there kind of is, but it's okay. Are they uh, lost? I don't think so. There you go. Okay, so what what are the Crown Jewels of Scotland? <laughs> what are the Crown Jewels of Ireland? Uh Maybe I'm just dumb, but I always thought the crown jewels were jewels that were in a crown. Oh my god, seriously? Yeah, that's not what it is. Um, for those of you who didn't also know, uh, the crown jewels of Ireland are basically, it's it's two pieces. So it's a jeweled star and a jeweled like badge. Um, and it was made in 1831 for the Sovereign and Grand Master of the Order of St. Patrick. Okay, now the Order of St. Patrick was a knighthood that was established in 1783 by George III. And this is at the time when George III was king of, like, Great Britain and Ireland. So basically the idea was he was like, hey, we have one of these knighthoods over here in England, and we also have one in Scotland, so let's make you one, too. And so they did. And the jewels uh, were, you know, what the sovereign or the grandmaster of this knight group, the Order of St. Patrick, was given. So the crown jewels of Ireland were transferred from a bank vault in the Birmingham Tower which was in the Dublin Castle Complex, to a new safe in the clock tower at a certain point in history. Okay? Now, this is where things get... Honestly, this whole story is super ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, the safe itself was supposed to be placed in, like, a strong room in this clock tower however the new safe was too large to get it through the doorway of the strong room something oh. you think they would have like thought about before i don't know someone's getting fired for this <laughs> but no they don't um so 
the safe was put in the library of Sir Arthur Vickers. Okay, now this library, from what I've read, was not like, it wasn't super conspicuous, but it wasn't like well hidden in the back of, you know, this building. It was, it was like easily accessible. So seven keys, apparently seven copies of the key existed for the door to the library itself. (laughs) And these were for, like, the various guards and stuff. And there were two keys that existed for the safe that was now in the library that had the crown jewels of Ireland in them. So, like, not great, but, like, I guess I get the idea of having, like, duplicate key. I don't know if you need seven for a library, but, like, duplicate keys, sure. I love this story already. This is just so off the rails yeah Mm -hmm. oh it gets better oh yay okay so the jewels were last seen in the safe on june 11th of 1907 and they were found to be missing on july 6th of 1907 now i will say that it does seem like in between june 11th and july 6th There were, like, a handful of security breaches that had occurred, including, like, the door to the library being, like, ajar one night. And at at a certain point, the some of the guards went in and, like, it, it was before this, but, I mean, it speaks to the lack of good security. The guards went in and, like, took the jewels out and put them on um vickers while he was asleep as like a practical joke <laughs> wait um, wait wait the guards the people yeah the people yeah. tasked with keeping the things safe well so it, no no so these guards weren't they were not for the crown jewels specifically they were just like oh. guards in general oh um but yeah still not good um but anyway so like in a like the door is ajar the apparently you know the like vickers got really drunk one night uh i feel like his i read something about his mistress possibly being found like a lot of not great things happened in this like very kind of like month-long period um so basically what you're telling me is in this month-long period between the time that they were known to still be there and the time that they formally disappeared they were all over the place in this well, library and and yeah state. i mean like i'm assuming somebody actually like che- i'm hoping somebody checked the safe between june 11th and july 6th but honestly it doesn't sound like it so i will say that um in like vickers basically tried to help them like solve the the case this disappearance so one of the things he noted was that there was a ribbon that was attached to the badge, which was one of the two pieces of the crown jewels. And the ribbon itself was still in the safe. Okay, now the ribbon was secured to the badge with, like, screws, meaning that the badge had to be unscrewed from the ribbon rather than somebody just, like, yanking it out mm-hmm. for the ribbon to be left in there. And then get this, the tissues and stuff that 
were wrapped around the jewels were refolded and put back in the boxes in the safe. Um, so like oh it's an inside job. Like it <laughs> also just so kind. What what yeah. kind burglars? Yeah. So uh really like there honestly this is one of the ones where there's so many theories about like who did it and why okay i'm not going to get into all of them because like the evidence for all of them is not great and some of them get like sort of complex basically um there was a man named john kane from scotland yard who was asked to come in and help to investigate this apparently he named the culprit but his report was never released so like that's kind of sketchy cool Vickers, um, basically, I, I what I've come to the conclusion of is I think it was probably Vickers in some shape or form because he was clearly not careful enough with like these things, and he was warned about like the security breaches and like chose not to do anything about it. But there's another interesting theory, which you know maybe, um. Vickers himself said that uh, the thief was a man who was his second in command by the name of Francis Shackleton. Now, Francis Shackleton was the brother of an explorer named Ernest Shackleton. We'll come back to that later. However, Francis Shackleton was found to, like, officially found to not be involved. Uh, He was literally out of the country when the theft occurred. (laughs) Um. Although there is like this theory that he was the mastermind behind the whole thing and it kind of got covered up because he was a homosexual and like the government didn't want anything getting out about that. The last one, which kind of leads me into like, where could the jewels be now, Mm -hmm. is that there is a theory that a group called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which is like a politically charged group smuggled the jewels to the u.s i will say that i only found like one account of that being like them being smuggled to the u.s specifically so at first i was like okay well they could be in the u.s maybe but like i don't know wasn't super confirmed otherwise no one really knows kind of like the library that i was talking about earlier with uh the from russia Some people think that the jewels themselves, because it seems like it was an inside job, were probably, like, sold or incorporated into, like, other jewelry at Mm -hmm. some point. Mm -hmm. So, are there existing national treasure connections? Yeah, that's what I really want to know. Although, to be fair, you have painted a wonderful picture, and now I kind of want this to be, like, the next Sherlock Holmes movie. Sherlock Holmes did investigate it in a book that <gasps> really? Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. I think Arthur Conan Doyle, I think I read that Arthur Conan Doyle like actually tried to like help solve it at one point. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Sherlock Holmes there's a a, a story with Sherlock Holmes. Oh fun. Who knew? So okay. you can check that out. Um so I immediately was like, okay, Ernest Shackleton, who is the brother of Francis Shackleton, was an explorer Mm -hmm. we like explorers okay so let's go here he led three british expeditions to the antarctic Mm. um 
all were kind of about like who could get to the new areas the fastest. So he wasn't like looking for anything. Um, but we get like even a little more national treasure because his last expedition was the Imperial Trans Antarctic Expedition from 1914 to 1917. Those dates will be important in a moment. But his ship Endurance got trapped in ice and was crushed. Everyone survived, but the shipwreck wasn't like found until like a hundred years later. This is giving Franklin expedition. Yes. So candidacy for National Treasure Three. I have a whole theory. <gasps> so Ooh, pitch me. I think we could combine the politically motivated smuggling of the treasure to the US and the connections between um Francis Shackleton and his brother, the explorer, and basically play off of the fact that his brother was an explorer. So I will note that Ernest Shackleton, the explorer, was on an expedition around 1907, but he did not leave on the Nimrod, which is the boat he left on, until January 1st of 1908 from New Zealand. So, could Francis Shackleton have stolen the crown jewels, given them to his brother, and then his brother went on an expedition... Now, the Nimrod expedition was, like, they came back and they were okay. The ship did not wreck or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I think they could tie that in with the Endurance shipwreck for sure and, like, fudge some numbers around and have it be, like, lost somewhere. The only problem is that it would mean that the jewels would have to be left in the An- Antarctic or, like, New Zealand. So... Maybe not. It would be tricky, but I think there's enough history and, like, connections and conspiracy. And, like, we could touch on the homosexuality thing and, like, trying to cover that up. We're trying to get more progressive, right? Like, I think there could be something here. It would just be – it would take a lot of, like, finagling. I feel like I would love to see National Treasure 3 go purportedly, of course, to Antarctica. Um, I think that could be really, really interesting. Um, We also know that National Treasure really likes to dive into indigenous history and like the indigenous communities in the Australia, New Zealand area could be really cool here. The biggest problem I see with it is the timing. Like this is all early 1900s. So we'd have to kind of pull, pull a fast one like I did with the Amber Room, for example, and say like, was there something about the jewels that contained a secret or, or had something and like that made them important from the beginning that people would want beyond just the monetary value, you know? Um, Right. Exactly. But that's, I mean, we could do that. Yeah. uh, We could throw, I mean, you get the political stuff in there and Mm -hmm. I feel like you got a good, uh... but if Disney's not going to touch Russia, is Disney going to touch political stuff? In a movie, I should clarify. Uh, yeah, probably not. I mean, also, it's, it's like the political stuff of, like, Ireland. You said 
Irish political history, Billy Pierce's family was killed in an IRA attack if they okay. wanted to tie in the show in a very subtle way. Okay. <laughs> I think we came up with a good plan. I think we should. This is the one that I was going to say. I think we should get John Tartletop on the line for. Uh, but uh, uh, we'll we'll let you go next because I know you have you have more stuff. So what what's your next treasure? All right, my my next and final treasure is um, lost Inca gold. All right, you might immediately be able to tell why I picked this one of the you know, tens or close to a hundred lost treasures that came up in our search, but humor me. We're going to go through the history here. Um, I do have to start with a disclaimer that this one is fairly amorphous because it is shrouded in legends and non-firsthand accounts of historical events. Okay, so bear with me. Essentially, legend has it that there was an ancient Incan city called Petiti, that was hidden in the rainforest somewhere east of the Andes Mountains between Peru, Bolivia, and Brazil. Uh, we, there's a combination of geographic uncertainty here in part because this is legend and in part because it has not been found to this day. Spoiler alert. All right. The Incans, as it turns out, may have retreated here to Petiti when Francisco Pizarro came, you know, in pursuit of conquering them. But there's also, like, more of a even more legend version of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the myth of Inkari. So in this myth, Inkari was a hero who vowed to avenge the death of Atahualpa. Um, Atahualpa was a ruler who was ultimately killed by Pizarro and the Spanish in 1533. His death and the whole story behind it is actually really fascinating. Um, Not relevant here, but definitely encourage people to look it up if they haven't heard it before. So that's who Inkari was supposedly in this myth. And the myth itself has several iterations, you know, in terms of did he actually go and avenge the death or did he retreat to Petiti? Now, the conquistadors heard about the myth or the fact that the Incans might, you know, did they retreat there? Were they being kind of passed down, whisper down the lane? Did they learn that the Incans had gone to this city? Basically, the conquistadors hear some iteration of this myth, this legend, this reality, and they assume that Petiti was full of riches, you know, gold, jewels, etc. Uh, in in legend, in a way, Petiti becomes its own El Dorado or Cibola, if you will. But here's the interesting part. And this is where the, if you thought this was amorphous already, get ready for this, because we're getting a lot of now like third-hand accounts. In the 1600s, a missionary by the name of Andres Lopez had been on a missions trip in the region where indigenous people supposedly told him about a city of riches called Petiti. Now he reported, Andres Lopez reported this information to the Pope and his report was rediscovered. Sorry, I love when things like disappear for a long time. It was rediscovered in 2001 by an Italian archeologist by the name of Mario Puglia. So basically, where are they now? You know, from the late 1500s up until present day, 
there have been innumerable searches for Petiti. And what I found really interesting, Em, have you heard of the show Expedition Unknown? Yes. Yeah. Um, Expedition Unknown searched for Petiti in its first season in an episode that aired back in 2015. Oh, wow. Yeah, and by the way, I I had also heard of Expedition Unknown, but I had never watched it, and it was during this little exercise that I learned somehow just now that the host of Expedition Unknown's name is Josh Gates. Hey! It broke my brain, and I did not know how to feel about it. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, as As our listeners probably know, since I'm assuming... Folks who listen to our show are interested in history, archaeology, exploration to some extent. So they'll probably know that tons of explorations across South America are literally unearthing new cities and constructed buildings literally to this day. And what I would say is fairly frequently, or at least at an astonishing rate, for the fact that they're being uncovered after, you know, centuries. So to date, despite all of these explorations and all of these more recent discoveries of cities, there's really no consensus that Petiti has actually been found, nor is it 100% accepted that it was real. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, like, I feel like from what you said, I see some national treasure connections 8,000 approximately 8,000 national treasure connections um to to sum them up I would say yeah not only did national treasure 2 purport to find Cibola which of course is admittedly different than Petiti but has like a same vibe right uh but edge of history's treasure apparently included Incan wealth Mm -hmm. and and here's a deep cut for you you ready for this okay Christopher Plummer who played Ben's grandfather in the very beginning of National Treasure. Christopher Plummer played Atahualpa, save, save your comments on that for another podcast, in the 1969 film version of a play called The Royal Hunt of the Sun, a play that is about the conflict between the Incas and Pizarro. Whoa. How's that for a national treasure connection for you? That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So, Emily, is the lost Incan gold a candidate for National Treasure 3? Of course not. They couldn't do it. <laughs> they couldn't do it even if they wanted to. Why? Because it would throw their entire Edge of History storyline under the bus since the Incan treasure was supposed to be part of the Pan American treasure. And you know what? That's a shame because it would have been a great Edge of History season two topic or even a good National Treasure three topic to connect back to either National Treasure two or Edge of History. Okay, Aubrey, you got a little sassy towards the end of that. And I want to. I, I, wanna... I think I was passionate. Yes. One step short of crazy. <laughs> um, I want to follow your sass with this last treasure that I have to talk about. It seems like a great place for us to end our treasure discussions today. Yeah. All, all the sass. So uh, my last treasure that Aubrey assigned me was the Nazi gold train. So I read this and I'm like, oh, cool. This seems... Like, it could be interesting. I hope I don't have to read too much about Nazis because, you know, 
that's unpleasant. But I didn't have to because I I don't this this isn't real. Um It is the one of the most popular treasures in pop culture. Yeah, theories. Uh so basically purportedly in the final days of World War II, there was a train that had gold on it. And it was hidden by the Nazis in southwest Poland, specifically a region called the Central Sudetes. Um, The train was said to be hidden in either a rail tunnel or a mine that happened to be under a castle. And that rail tunnel or mine was then sealed off. Now, I will say many people have searched for this. Nazi gold train, including the Polish army, okay? Mm-hmm. There is no evidence of the train, the tracks, or the treasure ever having existed. So what was the origin of this, like, legend then? Did you did you read anything about that? Like, no, why do people I, think it existed? Because it was the end of the war. Like, why would the Nazis not be doing this kind of stuff? You know, well, is was there like unex like was? I guess I'm wondering like, the Nazis were they known to have had like a lot of wealth that then disappeared? So they needed to someone needed to explain away what happened to all the wealth. It just kind of like they stole stuff. As with any good treasure, it experienced a resurgence of interest. This resurgence happened very recently. This was uh, between 2015 and 2018, okay? Mm -hmm. This is because two Polish men, uh, whose last names are Copper and Richter, said that they had found the location of this Nazi gold train, basically with, like, radar that can sense things underground. And they were able to convince a bunch of people, including the Polish military, to dig for it again. However, they never actually, the Polish military never finished the dig because eventually as they like got deeper, they kept kind of checking Uh uh, with the radar and it was detected that the anomaly was actually like natural ice formations. (laughs) Woof. Okay. So, however, that didn't stop. You can't stop two rich men. So Copper (laughs) and Richter still kept going privately uh they like kind of like gathered more funds from private sources and stuff like that and they eventually did find seven cavities underground now they thought these were like part of a railway tunnel okay whether or not that's true i i mean i don't think it's true but okay um I should note that Richter left the expedition, like the excavation group in 2018. But because you can't keep a rich white man down, Copper continued the the excavation and happened, it seemingly unrelatedly, to find a large 16th century like storage of paintings behind a plaster wall in an old palace near Rorclaw. Really? Yes. Now, fun fact, not only did the Nazi gold train, even though it's called the gold train, 
supposedly have like our art on it as well. But it was said that that train um, that was purported to be the Nazi gold train and never like reached its final destination, supposedly, left from Roclaw? Roclaw, yeah. Okay. So, like, maybe they didn't actually put it on a train? Like, maybe they just hit it. Well, maybe they intended to put it on a train and just never got to that point. I mean, yeah, like like you said, the the Nazis and we all we talked about this in the context of the the Amber Room too. The Nazis looted a lot of artifacts and art. So and that would be wealth. You know, it might not be gold, but you could certainly sell that kind of stuff for gold. It feels like this is a legend that even if we don't know where exactly it originated from, it seems like it was probably inspired by real events at least in the onset of like you know oh, where did yeah. this wealth go oh yeah and i mean i mean there like supposedly there was a train that left mm. royal claw and then was supposed to go somewhere else and never made it there mm. like uh, you know i feel like train reportings during the end of world war ii maybe were not like the best so like you know whatever but anyway where are they now or where is the nazi gold train now well we just discussed that it might not actually be on a train Mm -hmm. if anywhere the like treasure that was contained here probably is in poland so are there any existing national treasure connections here's where i get a little sassy uh tunnels tunnels (laughs) are cool uh as my favorite character says who wants to go down the dark creepy tunnel first um also I will remind you, and you probably remember this, Aubrey, Charles told us a story in one of our early conversations with him, Charles Seegers, about wanting to do something with National Treasure in a train station. And I forget if it was photo glass, but it was like glass panels that had like remnants of old photos in them. It was at the Grand Central Station in New York. And so... I was kind of like, okay, well, he had this idea for this, like, train thing that (laughs) happened at a train station, so maybe it's a stretch. Um, Okay, but what about Candidacy for National Treasure 3? And spoiler alert, I did put this treasure last because I thought it would be fun to end on this, so. Yeah, Uh, I don't think this is based in enough, like, actual facts to really be taken seriously by the writers personally like i know that it's something that's like talked about a lot but like if there were like specific works of art that were directly associated with this like train like maybe um and maybe that you know we know that as you said the nazis stole a bunch of stuff so like yeah sure however my my larger point it's nazis Indiana Jones has literally done Nazis a bunch of times now. Plus, we now have to deal with them again, basically, in, like, real life. Um, I don't think National Treasure 3 would touch uh, Nazis. In addition, uh, might I point out that we covered on this very podcast a fairly recent film called Red Notice, 
um, which basically manipulated the Nazi gold train idea and found like all of the Nazis like stash in South America. Um, so it's also been done very recently. Funnily enough, um, you did not mention the argument that I thought you'd mention, which is how much we rant on the fact that just in general, a World War II era treasure hunt is not interesting to us personally. And we feel very passionately about it for National Treasure 3. I feel like you feel more passionately about that than I do, which is why I didn't mention it. <laughs> but- really? <laughs> Oh, I did not know that. Okay, well, maybe I'm thinking of others like Lillian who and others who have talked about how, and also John Turtletaw basically confirmed we would never get a 1900s era treasure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, for, for many reasons, it's not going to happen. My biggest thought immediately upon seeing this was like, they're not going to do Nazis. Everybody does Nazis. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Fun. Okay, so we learned a lot about six legendary treasures today. The bold statement that my treasures were not important. <laughs> I found the the Irish crown jewels to be very interesting. Oh, same. Anyway, I thought we would wrap up with a brief reflection. Emily, I don't know if you have any reflections yourself, but this exercise definitely led me to some overarching thoughts. Specifically... When we started thinking about the candidacy for National Treasure 3 question, it it was meant and is always meant to be a fun exercise, but doing so really made me realize how I personally conceptualize National Treasure stories. Um, how I conceptualize them is basically based on the concept of what could have been hidden, like in the treasure or about the treasure that's in question. Like, why did the treasure go missing? What is mysterious about it? Could there be a message? Could there be a belief, a secret alliance, etc.? That's how I really think about how these stories are put together. I think doing so, like taking that route, easily provides a reason for the treasure to go missing in the first place. But it could also address the page 47 conundrum, right? How do we make page 47 not just the name of a treasure, right? How do we make Mm -hmm. it a little bit more mysterious than that? How do we make it a first clue? How do we make it, you know... um, life-altering information that launches a new treasure hunt but doesn't give away the punchline i think that like weird like what message could have been on the french ship that blackbeard stole kind of thing is a really cool way of doing that Mm -hmm. um the other thing that i think is worth noting here remember that this franchise must ultimately find the treasure on American soil for it to really be national treasure. That's been since day one, one of the properties of the franchise. So any treasure in question would have to have a logical reason to have ended up here. And I think that is what really narrows down the choice of treasure. Mm -hmm. Because one of the, I think the powerful things about the treasure is we never so far, I mean, Edge of History eh, is is a little bit of a culprit here. But with the films, at least, the rationale for the treasure being on American soil was very clear. It was mm-hmm. based at least a little bit in history. And so we don't just want to say, oh, the Irish crown jewels are here because of something we made up. That's not really how this works. And 
I'll just say that of the three treasures that I researched today, this quality makes Blackbeard's treasure the easiest fit without doing like some heavy conspiracy theory mental gymnastics. Should it be Blackbeard's treasure? Probably not. But that is a really <laughs> important point, locating the treasure here that we cannot forget. Yeah, no, that's great. I don't, my my kind of like reflection is is not quite as deep as yours necessarily. Uh, I think for me, what I realized is uh, in both like dissecting the this like brought me back to the roots of National Treasure Hunt, right? Because in both like what we do when we dissect the treasures to figure out like how we got there mm-hmm. from the movies or the show as well as if we're doing like the reverse and trying to see like how it could fit into a national treasure three scenario i'm really like doing the thing that i love in like science which is like trying to create like a train of logic from one piece to another and i do this in teaching a lot too and I really, I just think, like, for me, it was a really fun exercise and kind of really just, like, brought me back to, like, oh, this is why we really enjoy doing this thing. Yeah, that's probably why treasure hunts in general are so appealing to you, because they are very orderly and logical, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, we hope you all learned a thing or two along with us today. Are there any treasures in history that you're really interested in? Have you already figured out what treasure should be the subject of National Treasure 3? If you have or haven't, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. You can also find us on our website, nthuntpodcast.com. And we have a Patreon that you can become a member of, patreon.com slash nthuntpodcast. And you guys, our next episode is a big one. It is our season seven finale, where we have an interview with... It's a surprise and you have to come back to find out. (laughs) So (laughs) until then, y'all, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. (laughs) 